0: Welcome, everyone. I'm sitting here today with Edwin Bryant. Edwin, thank you so much for joining me. I don't have an official introduction for you, but I do want to say that I have embraced your translation of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, along with all of the classical commentaries on the sutras, and it's such an important book for so many yoga students and yoga teachers. So thank you so much for that, and... um, I just wanted to sit down and hear from you. And hear. I really wanted to talk about sadhana. So we speak a lot about yoga practice. What are the yoga practices? How does Patanjali guide us about yoga practice? What are bhakti practices? What can we do in our daily sadhana? What's your sadhana? What's sadhana? So if you'd like to take a moment and tell us more about yourself, then my cursory introduction and we'll continue.
1: Sure. Um, we'll, we'll just, we'll just launch into a discussion. Um, so, so sadhana is, uh, um, a, a, sans- a Sanskrit term and, uh, it sort of means practice. It's, it's um, we find it in the second chapter of the yoga sutras is called the sadhana pada, the chapter on, on practice. The first chapter Patanjali lays out his goal and the goal is the practices. The method is vritti Nirodha. And the goal is tada you know if you do that tada then what happens then drashtu sarupe then the seer abides in its own nature it's an experience of pure consciousness so the first chapter is samadhi pada essentially lays out the goal tells us what some of the various stages of samadhi are and then the second chapter is okay if you've survived the first chapter if that all makes sense if that seems like a coherent sort of goal in life then the next question might be well that's all very well and good very convincing I'd like to perhaps you know aspire for that or at least know something about how does one attain those states uh, we clearly we can't just sit down uh, unless we and, and slide into a state of and if we can do that and occasionally do read hagi- hagiographical accounts of people that do that then probably it would be because of, 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 of practices sadhana in a past life so we get to the second chapter, and he 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 initiates that with a, with another word for sadhana, which is kriya. kriya, just means comes from the root kri, kri, which is the same root as karma. So kri is to do. it. So kriya is an action. So what do you do? What is an action? What actions do you do? And so then we have the second um, we have the second chapter of the Patanjali Yoga Sutra, and um, and and then it and, not, and, and the ingredients of chapter two are not the goal. They're just the, 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 the preparatory work that we need to do in order to, to, to create a state of pure sattva in the mind because the state of chitta vittina is a state of pure sattva. And so there are various Kriyas that we do. We start off with tapas, tapaha, uh, which is um, basically control of the senses. Tapaha, tapaha means to control the senses, to control the desires, uh, but the desires are in the mind. And those, and those desires are fulfilled through the senses. So whether you want to, whether you want to frame it as a control of the senses, or a control of the desires in the mind, the two go together. So the so ultimately, it's it's a control of the desires in the mind. And so therefore, when desires in the mind it, it arise, and later on in the chapter, what do you do? Vitarkapada nae. What do you do? Pratipaksha bhavanam then you, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the Sutras and Pratipaksha Bhavanam. What happens in Vitarga Bhadane, when sort of thoughts pertaining to desires, the opposite of the Yamas. So th- thoughts of violence or non-truthfulness or sexual indul- or, you know, indulgence or possessiveness or the whatever is, is contrary to the five Yamas. What happens when those, those thoughts arise in the mind? You apply jnana to them, you consider the consequences. We'll talk more about that. Considering the consequences means being, you know, apply knowledge to them, apply wisdom to them. So we'll, we'll revisit that. Uh, but but so, the, so, so he starts off with, uh, with three Kriyas. For whatever reason he chooses three, later on he's going to talk about the eight limbs of yoga and the same three are going to resurface in the second limb of the Niyamas. So um, the commentators don't really say, why did he select these three and not any other three? One commentator, as I recall, says, you know, somehow or other, they're particularly important. But uh, I I don't recall a, a deep conversation or a deep discussion in the commentaries as to why these particular three were selected. But that doesn't matter. That, you know, that's just a but these three were selected. And the first is, is tapa. Notice the very first word in the entire chapter is control of the desires. There is no yoga without the desires being controlled because yoga is mostly about cultivating the state of sattva. And sattva means not rajas or tamas, or at least a minimization or a control of rajas and tamas. And, and, and desire is raga, which is the same root. The same word as rajas. Rajas.
0: Sattva, sattva, is sattva already present?
1: It's potentially present, latently present in the, in every in all the mind of all beings. Yes, uh, everybody has a chitta, all all beings, and you know, trees and bugs and ants, and and the chitta is made of property, subtle property. It's Actually, quite sattvic compared to let's say the body, or the objects of the senses. But the the, the chitta is potentially, you know, made of sattva, rajas, and tamas. So Krishna in the Gita says, you know, these three are always in competition with each other. So sometimes sattva arises and we have our sort of lucid moments and our moments of detachment and compassion and love. And then rajas takes over and we become frenzied and desireful and running around. And then tamas sometimes kicks in. We become depressed or vengeful or angry or destructive. So the gunas are in competition. But yoga is about... Uh, creating a lifestyle that maximizes sattva. We can never be totally free of the other two unless you're in a state of and Narodha, then it's one hundred percent sattva. One hundred percent. Because even the slightest one percent of rajas would create vritti and, and would co- and that vritti would, would, would capture consciousness. So the consciousness would be vritti Sarupyam verse four. It would be absorbed in the vritti rather than swarupa vastanam. So in Patanjali and yoga then, and now remember, there's different kinds of yoga. And we're talking about Patanjali yoga. That's the only yoga that's a nirodha yoga. Kriya yoga is not a nirodha yoga. Karma yoga is not a nirodha yoga. And bhakti yoga most certainly is not a nirodha practice. So right now we're talking about uh, Patanjali yoga because I'm assuming many of your students will, you know, somehow or other the yoga sutras has become the canonical text the yoga community in the West. So it kicks off with, but, all, but one thing they all, they all do agree upon, are certainly these three ingredients, Kriya Yoga. And, and there's no question about then the control of the desires. There's no, if we want to try to wriggle around out of that, and of course, everybody does, but then that's not really yoga. That's actually then some kind of a, you know, something else, but it isn't yoga. Yoga, again, in the, in the Gita too. Right right throughout the entire Gita, starting in the second chapter, verse, again, verse after, verse after verse after verse after verse after verse is about being free of desire, free of desire, free of attachment. You know, you just have to consider Arjuna's question. You know, who is the di, Who is the sage with the the fixed mind? And Krishna repeats again and again, one who is free of attachment, free of thirst. You know, changing the vocabulary a bit, same point. So that means some kind of discipline. A yogic practice is, involves some kind of discipline. Whatever we've done to yoga in our new, in our new age, you know, you know, sunset on the beach, yoga, whatever the heck, it, 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 real yoga, whether it's Jain, Buddhist, even right-handed tantra, even left-handed tantra, involves discipline. So that's tapas. The second ingredient, which is essential, is to nourish our understanding of, of, of the practices, of the goals, of what, the metaphysics, of, of the, you know, who are we ultimately in a deep level sort of way. And that's Svadhyaya, Svadhyaya is a sacred text. We read about the philosophy, the practices, we read about the great beings who, who, have, who follow this path. So Svadhyaya is the study of sacred te- texts, it's essential. In this way, we nourish our spiritual little seedling that we're trying to nourish. We need to infertilize it. We need to constantly nourish it. And how do we nourish that? On the one hand, tapaha, we have to get rid of any weeds that might come up and choke it. In bhakti, it's called the bhakti bij, the seed of bhakti. It needs to be, it needs to be protected. It needs to be, uh, it needs to be cultivated. So the tapas gets rid of unwanted weeds that might choke it. But then we need to also add some, some we need to nourish it in its own right, not just to get rid of weeds. So that's the svadhyaya. And then so we study the Gita, we study the Yoga Sutras. If you're a Bhakti, you study the, you know, depending on your, your Bhakti tradition, there's different Bhakti traditions, but you study the text associated with your form of Bhagavan or Bhagavati. That is your that is your Ishta Devata. That, is, that has captured your heart, yes. Because bhakti is bhakti is a relationship between a bhakta and a form of Bhagavan.
0: The beloved. the beloved. The beloved.
1: Yeah, but bhakti, real bhakti is is monogamous.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Real bhakti is monogamous. One respects all, of course, one respects all the different forms of, they're all the forms of one's beloved, but there's one form that has captured one's heart. It's monogamous. And so therefore, um, if you go onto my website, then you'll see my puja room and you'll see,
0: we it and well, but, well it. that's
1: an example where all the Ishvara forms are there, but there's only one form in the central temple where, which receives the puja. That's the Ishti Devata. All the other forms are respected, they're honored. One recognizes that they're all ultimately the same being. But it's not polytheism. But, uh, so Bhakti, so, uh, and so therefore, we'll, we'll get, hang on, we'll get to that because we're going to get to the third ingredient of, of, of Kriya Yoga. So Swadhyaya means the study of Jnana texts. And a Jnana text is something which primarily focuses on the Atman. A Jnana, a Bhakti texts primarily focus on Bhagavan, because they have Jnana in them. But if we want to just sort of make simple, you know, uh, they're very porous. I'm not trying to make hard and fast boundaries. Right. But if we want to think, talk about Patanjali and yoga, it's really a Chittavritya Naroda yoga. It's complete and utter cessation of every, all, all mental activities.
0: So when you say Atman, you mean it's talking about the individual yes. essential path or the, the innate the being. being.
1: The ultimate monad that is you. And that is distinct from me because you're conscious of you. You're not conscious of me. You might be making inferences about me by looking at my face, by sort of making inferences about some of the things I say, but you're not conscious of what's going on inside my mind or inside my body. So you're conscious of you. And mo- almost, m- almost, most Indian philosophy, the Atman is an individual. In Buddhist, Jain, uh, most Vedanta, certainly yoga, and certainly Sankhya. It's eternally individual but there are some schools like advaita vedanta where upon liberation the the atman merges into brahman and loses its individuality that that school's got a lot of had a lot of attention in the west but actually it's a minority school in some ways it's actually one, only one branch of vedanta also a lot of the shakta traditions are also what we may call monistic but let's let's bracket that we're going all over the place here let's keep our eye on the ball so kriya, then the second ingredient is svadhyaya. But all of this kind of stuff is a part of the svadhyaya. You study. There's traditions that say your atman is an individual. Other traditions say, well, individuality is ultimately illusory. You will, you'll, you'll eventually lose that and merge into some. You have to decide which path you're going to follow because the paths say different things. Don't think they're all saying the same things. They are not. And svadhyaya, the you know, more, the more sophisticated the svadhyaya is, the more. One is able to identify what makes more sense to the samskaras in your mind, in my mind. Because when we make a decision about a path, it's the samskaras in our mind, which the com- accumulation of who knows the practices we did in past lives, traditions we followed in past lives, all of those samskaras come together. Uh, and, they, and then when we encounter di- these differences, some will make more sense to us than others. They mo- what does that mean? It means they make more sense to the samskaras in our mind. So we will say, no, I, I believe that the Atman is an individual and an eternal individual. That makes the most sense to me. But another, t- but another set of samskaras will say, well, actually, it makes more sense to me that the Atman merges into some Brahman higher truth. So to, to decide where you stand on those kinds of issues, Swadhyaya is the only way to do that. I was just, um, you know, putting, you know, I'm just sort of doing these recordings on the Vedanta Sutras. Uh, because we had a course on the Vedanta Sutra last semester, and, and, and COVID hit at, at the spring break. So chapter two, three, and four was all online, and I thought, well, you know, put it up on my website, let all, let the yoga community engage. But I didn't do chapter one, because we did that in the, in the classroom. And, you know, I didn't really want to go back and do it again, because, you know, life takes us into other... But anyway, I thought, look, this is... It's going to be up there forevermore, you know, in case anybody's interested. Let me, let me re-record chapter one. So I'm now back in chapter one and you know, the second, the third verse is that how do we know these things? How do we know what Brahman is from the scripture, which means Svatya. I'm connecting all this now to svadhyaya. How do we know? What is the scripture? The scripture is to tell us things that we do not know through sense perception and through inference. I don't need the scripture to tell me what this is. As I can see it, it's a it's a nice Indian, you know, drinking vessel, I, 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 and 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 if I didn't know what it was, I don't need the scripture to. I could make an inference. I could say, well, look, it's got water in it, it's you know, it's sitting next to a speaker who's probably going to get a dry throat, and even you know, well, you could say someone might never have seen a shape like that before, and it doesn't look like a Western glass. So then you make an inference. Anumana. Anumana. Now we don't need scripture for things that about which we can do we can know through pratyaksha, and about which we can know through anumana. So what do we need scripture for? Things that we cannot perceive, shabda, things shabda. that we can't perceive, like Brahman. We can't perceive that what is the cause of this world. We can make an inference and say, well, it must be intelligent, right? the, the school of logicians in India, they make an inference, like a bit like intelligent design. Nowadays in the West, amongst modern scientists, it's called intelligent design. You look at the universe, you see how incredibly meticulously fine-tuned it is, and you say, there's no way that could be happened randomly. There must be intelligence behind it. Well, you could make that an inference, but that's all you can do. You, don't have, you have no idea what that nature of that cause it that, that, that being is. And I was just uh, recording it today. That's why it's fresh in my mind. So the commentators of the Vedanta say, well, how do you know it's even one being? What if it's 10 beings up there? You know, even Descartes said, "How do you know it's a benevolent being? What if it's a demon? What if it's an alien?" All right, so there's, we can say inference can say there must be intelligence, but it can't say anything more. So therefore, how do we know what that first that cause is? How do we know what what consciousness is? The scriptures tell us, and that's svadhyaya. Now, the scriptures say different things. Buddhism is saying something very different about the up about the self than Vedanta, than Yoga. There are differences. So, you, so then one has to decide, okay, am I, the difference between an intellectual and a yogi is that an intellectual just keeps reading everything, reading everything, and it's just stimulated by the intellectuality of it. It's not, it's not, engage, it's not sort of committing to anything. That's an academic. I'm an academic. So my, most of my colleagues are just, um, they, they just take their pleasure. They, they take their, their rasa. They take their, 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 their taste in life is pure intellectuality. But a yogi is someone who commits to a path. So that, that So which path then? Which path? Are you just gonna blindly just sort of flip a coin or are we blindly just gonna follow the first person with a big beard and a saffron robe? Or are we going to engage in Svadhyaya and, 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 and make a rational choice between Buddhism and, the, and even within Buddhism, there's many different schools of Buddhism and then Vedanta, there's different schools of Vedanta. And then of course, Bhakti. If you're gonna go for Bhakti, Who's gonna steal your heart? It's gonna be Devi, it's gonna be Kali, it's gonna be the beautiful Lord Shiva, the gracious, magnanimous Lord Shiva? Is it gonna be Narayana with all his majesty? Is it gonna be Little Krishna who hides his majesty and, and pees on the floor? Who's gonna capture your heart? And that and how do you know all of that? Through Svadhyaya. So that's the second that's the second ingredient in the verse number one, uh, two, one, number one in chapter two. When we'll do the third one, and then we'll we'll stop, and you can you can see where where you want to go. So the third one is Ishwar Pranidhana, which is bhakti. We've already said a few things about that. You surrender to Ishwara. and and then Vyas says this is a bhakti vishesha. It's a kind of bhakti. It is bhakti, special kind of bhakti. And what is bhakti? Bhakti actually bhakti bhakti piggybacks on svadhyaya. The first step of bhakti is hearing, of course. For them it was hearing for us it's reading because you know before the printing press you know most anywhere in the world but certainly in india you know a few brahmins had some manuscripts with the vast majority of people were receiving this through through hearing orally so so what is bhakti then it is a relationship with uh, a devotional surrender uh, initially it's just a surrender because one is suffering and one you know surrenders to higher power but Eventually, that so initially it's because of suffering, it's kind of self selfish motives. All yoga begins with suffering, yes, all, all and
0: selfish it. motives,
1: and so of course, but, <laughs> but high level selfish motives, yes, high sattvic selfishness, yes. The desire for liberation is a sattvic desire, it's aklishta, it's aklishta, aklishta, it's not klishta, it's aklishta. Mm-hmm. So, let's just to wrap all that up then. So, the Ishwaparnidana then. Is about uh, uh, finding an, the, a form of ishwar that you form in love with. Now, it's you know, obviously for many people in India that's just inherited from your family, but and it's kind of cultural and not not you know it's more just piety and people go to the temple and just like 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 anybody does and just ask God for stuff. But uh, but deeper level bhakti is is not like that. It's not about asking God for stuff. It's about it's about completely surrendering, accepting whatever God, you know whatever one's situation is and trying to actually not, not just engage God to become free of suffering, but to actually develop love through acts of devotion. We approach God and we, uh, and so that, that requires a, 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 if you go deep, it requires a, a, a particular form that, well, that one becomes attracted to. And then that, it may be the, one meets a guru and then the guru then he belongs to a lineage and then one accepts the form that's, that's worshiped in that lineage or it may be from Patanjali. Says Swadhyayat Ishita Deva He says you can find your Ishtadeva from study. So that's study can also you know give that. And so we read the books and we and we just start, start we start thinking. Well, Krishna is really cool. It's it, it's transrational. That's a transrational thing. Love is a transrational. It's beyond reason. There's nothing rational about Krishna peeing on the floor of the of the gopis homesteads. There's nothing rational about saying God does that. That's pure revelation. Okay, over to you.
0: Uh, so let's see. Um, Swadhyay. So swadhyaya would be the agama.
1: Yeah, same thing. It's called uh, agama. It's called shabda in other That's in Vedanta. That. It's called you know shastra. Um, there's many different terms for, for it. But essentially, it's arguments it's words, uh, because um, that's that's another way of knowing something, something you can't see, and something you can't make inferences about. Well, how do you know it? Well, in this case, what about things that are beyond, you know, beyond this world, beyond, you know, uh, beyond perception? Well, the words of the uh, the words of Ishvara in the form of of, of the sacred texts, that, that's another way of knowing. Now, whether you, now the actual word in Sanskrit is shabda, so Vedanta calls that shabda but patanjali calls it agama yes but it's the same thing you can okay. also call it shruti shruti that which was heard mm-hmm. that which was handed down or orally you can call it smriti that which was remembered but all of it is all of the common denominator of all these terms is it involves words the common denominator pratyaksha is it involves the senses the common denominator of anumana it, it's deductive reasoning but the, the third form of knowledge in patanjali whether you call it agama or shabda or smriti or shruti it all it all involves words where now for us it's written words it's still words for them it was oral words but it was but but it's words
0: and our attraction to the path that we choose you said it's samskara so it has its root in the karma it has the root in our past actions, our past experiences.
1: Yes, but at some point, there's got to be the first, the first samskara. You can't, we can't, we can say, okay, past life, okay, but what about that life? Well, past life, okay. At some point, there has to be the first uh, a samskara, and samskara doesn't just magically manifest in the mind. There is no magic. Uh, in, this is matter, subtle matter. A samskara is subtle matter. So just like mat- gross matter is neither created nor destroyed, nor is subtle matter. Therefore, there has to be the first samskara that comes let me quickly finish, that comes from the outside. And that's the teacher, that's the guru, the guru is the one who, and that's why we honor our gurus. Because for many of us, they gave us the first, we, we don't know if we practice in a past life or not. We, we do. How do we know that? Maybe we did, we'll never know that, unless you can revisit your past life and develop at the city that Patanjali talks about. But if you don't, if we don't do that, how do we know? So, but what we do know is that our our, our teachers, instead of just sitting in the cave, with their japa absorbed in the bliss of the holy name uh, and their blissful practices, this is like the Bodhisattva of Buddhism, the even Mukta of Hinduism came out and they, some of them crossed the ocean and they came and they, they didn't have to, why did they do it? Because they're benevolent beings and they, and they spoke and those words entered our ears. And and, and it went down into our hearts and some of it and for for many and some of us took those those words became the bija. They became the seed which slowly manifested into For some of us took over our entire life and we became sadhus and we became bhakta's and we became yogis. So where at some point that that uh, the word has to be there has to be that first word. That enters the whether this life or a past life it doesn't make any difference the principle the mechanics is the same it has to come from the outside that's why we honor our teachers
0: that's the honey the honey poured into the ear and the heart of the of the shishya yes of the student so the guru the teacher compassionately and generously shares yes and awakens the longing, the interest, and the desire.
1: Yeah. Well, it could be awakened, but it could. But if you awaken something, it means that thing is already there. Mm-hmm. Of course, the Atman is already there, but the longing for it has to have some first point. And so therefore, that the guru plants that seed of longing, actually. The guru plants that seed of longing. If we already had it, and some of us had it at very young ages, we had this craving well, then that perhaps that was a past life but we'll never know that mm-hmm. so whether it was or it wasn't we nonetheless honor our teachers in this life whether whether they gave us the first seed or whether they nourished a seed that or awakened like as you put it whether they awakened a seed that was already there we don't know which one it is but either way we honor them yes and it's honey because it's sweet yes because it gives us relief from the suffering of samsara and the t- amrita, amrita is amrita. The, the amrita the nectar, yes. The
0: nectar. So your journey began on a bhakti path, and you moved towards learning more and towards Sanskrit and translations. Or did you begin, or did it all begin together? Is there an order to?
1: I, know, I our... began the bhakti path, and everything I do is my bhakti. Even though I do a lot of jnana, you know, because I did the yoga sutras and that's kind of a jnana text. And, um, you know, I teach Indian philosophy and all of that. But it, for me, it's all, I always find a way of connecting it to bhakti. I always find a way, even if I'm teaching, I, 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 I honor the tradition. If the if tradition is jnana, I don't try to superimpose things upon it. I don't try to you know, add things that are not there. I try to be very traditional, but I always find ways of connecting it all to Ishwar. Because most of traditions do have Ishra. Patanjali has Ishra. Very very minimalistically, we can say. Yes. Very underdeveloped, but he's there. Uh, so my path was a Bhakti path. Yes, I went to India in the 70s. I was one of these characters that hitched like, across Asia when you could still, like, probably one of the very, very last that was able to do that because it was 78, 79. And then I lived for a few years in India. And I yes, I lived in an ashram as well for a number of years. And then um, when I became... This, this illusion, I suppose, with ashram life, not so much ashram life, but the politics of ashram hierarchies. Then I looked for a way to continue my practices and, you know, and be independent and maintain myself. With, uh, you know, getting a bit older, and uh, so hitchhiking around the world was, kind of, perhaps not, you know, had its lim- had its limitations at a certain age. So then I somehow or other the doors of academe opened for me and um, I, I you know I got fellowships and grants and all the rest of it. And here I am as a as an academic. But I, I you know, so I suppose I do a lot of gyana, yes, but it's all it's all bhakti. My practice is bhakti, my, my heart practice is bhakti, and I I have you know, I have a fairly a fairly strict morning morning sadhana, which is how we started our conversation. Yes. So those are the three things in Patanjali. Now, if we want to move on to Bhakti, see Patanjali just says Ishvara Pranidhana. Well, Bhakti takes that Ishvara Pranidhana and says, okay, there's infinite ways of doing Bhakti. There's infinite ways of Pranidhana-ing to, to Ishvara. But it identifies nine primary ways. So these are the famous nine processes of Bhakti. So it starts again with Shravana, with hearing. And then it is Shravanam Kirtanan. and then we think about, we, we chant, we become delighted by our Ishwaras, and we chant, we love to chant their names, we, we love to get together with other people that share our, our love with our beloved, and we chant together.
0: So this Kirtanam, that's sharing Kirtan, that's Kirtan, praising of the names and the attributes of the beloved.
1: And the Leelas and the, lilas, isn't the activities as well. So some of the little songs we sing have little snippets of activity, right? So Govinda Jaya Jaya, Gopala, Jaya Jaya. What is that? Well, Govinda is the, Gopala is the is the one who protects the go, the cow, and the Govinda is the one who oversees the cows. So Isn't what what it? has that got to do with it? Well, where does that come from? Well, it comes from the stories, the activities of when Krishna descends into the world. In the Gita, Krishna says, "One who understands my activities and birth, such a person is liberated." There's a little glimpse of that even in the Gita. So Bhakti then has the nine processes which involve things like you know w- w- uh, worshipping the deity, smaranam, remembering, very good, always remembering Bhagavan all the time. See the, all of the yoga processes involve some kind of, me- of memory or meaning keeping a certain type of thinking present in the mind. That's what we mean by memory. So in Naroda, in Patanjali Yoga, what, what do you have what do you have to remember? Well, the Niroda Samskara has to remember to Naroda all the other samskaras. That is a kind of memory, mm-hmm. right? The minute there's some vritti, then the Niroda has samskaras to jump on it. In Jnana Yoga, you have to you have to constantly keep a type of memory of the Jnana of the truths of the Upanishads. I am Atman. I'm not the body. The world is temporary. The world is ephemeral. Desires never satisfy. Desires are illusory. They are ungrateful masters. They never live up to their promises. All of this is jnana. And then in karma yoga, we have to keep all of that, plus add to it, well, what is my duty? What is my duty? And in this situation, any situation at every moment, and am I doing this duty without any attachment to the results? That's a type of memory. Call it mindfulness, if you will, but mindfulness is memory. Keeping your presence there, keeping witnessing, watching. It's desire creeping into my activities. Karma yoga, if you want it to be to act in the world, has to be free of personal desire. And what is bhakti then? It's keeping your Ishwar in mind all the time. So all of it involves memory, but different use of memory in the different yoga paths. Go ahead. You, you were going to say. I was
0: going to say Krishna. Krishna gives the karma yogi an out, where in the Bhagavad Gita, he says, okay, work and act and earn, but offer it to me.
1: Yeah, but the rules of karma yoga still apply. Yes. You work and you act and you earn, but you have to do all of that without attachment to any fruits. You're doing that. You're not thinking, I'm working because, and, and I will consequently get payment or I will get this or I'll get fame or you, you constantly have to be working duty as an act of duty for duty's sake so therefore the bhakti still respects the rules of karma yoga and the rule of karma yoga the one karmini <laughs> ma you do your work but never no attachment you can't be attached to the fruit so bhakti doesn't it's not an alternative to that Bhakti takes that and then adds a whole other dimension, which is now do your karma without attachment to the fruits. And by the way, karma yoga itself is based on gyana yoga. So each one is based on the on the previous one. That's why we, the Gita starts with gyana. You're the Atman, you're eternal, no weapons can kill you. All of those first, you know, 20, 30, from 211 to about 230, it's all gyana yoga. Then we get this transition to karma yoga. Bhakti then says, okay, now you've got to keep your gyana, Foundation that you are the Atman, you're not body mind, and you know, and the goal of life is to seek truth and not to chase ephemeral pleasures and desires. That's the foundation, that's kyana, that's the foundation of all everything, even Patanjali. The foundation, then Gita introduces his new teachings of karma yoga, which were not really there in the other te- older texts. He even says, Krishna says, These teachings got lost. I'm reintroducing them. He says himself in chapter four. So, that's acting in the world. But without attachment, fine. But then, but then the whole the, the bhakti takes over the whole gita, and bhakti is okay. You do those two things, but now do it all as an offering to me. In addition to that, in addition to keeping the gyaner in mind, in addition to doing your duty very scrupulously with not letting any personal desire— but desire means body, mind, desire. It's okay to desire God. That's a whole different thing. And offer it all to me. Whatever you do, whatever you eat, whatever sacrifices you do, whatever tapas, even tapas, you do that, but offer it to me. Chapter 9. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you.
0: So, how can you know, many seekers, right, we perhaps rejected the religion or the ritual or the belief system of our upbringing. And now we're out in India in this, you know, kind of exotic, exoteric exotic, you know, land and trying to awaken through all this imagery and temples and awaken this longing how can we know or how can, how can we trust the way forward? Trusting the teachers?
1: Yeah, well, you look at the, the, first of all, the philosophy has to be, be coherent. So that's the Svadhyaya part of it. it. You know, Indian, all of these traditions, you know, whether it's Krishna or Kali with the 16 arms and a, and a mouth and a tongue and the skull, it all looks, as you say, exotic and esoteric they all of them are supported by profound theologies. They have, just like Christianity has, you know, Augustine and Aquinas and the early church fathers, we may agree or we may not agree, but intense human intellectual and uh, uh, philosophical engagement has been channeled to support these traditions just as it has in the Christian tradition. So as Christianity has its, even today here in Rutgers, we have the, the philosophy of religion, I think it's the best philosophy department in the world. It goes backwards and forwards between the the best and the second best. And it has a small contingent of Christian thinkers and they are brilliant. They're amazing. And they're engaging, whatever the present day conversations going on in philosophy are, they're engaging that support and defense of Christianity. I have to say, gave me great hope and and great satisfaction to know that Christianity is alive and kicking. Uh, So just as that is the case, um, so it is the case with these, when, they, when we say esoteric and exotic, it just means that we don't have samskaras in our mind that recognize them. So our samskaras, well, whatever our stoic, you know, whatever, you know, Catholic, well, Catholic is not so stoic, but, you know, you know Protestant, whatever our, our notions of God are that we, from our West, and then all we'll of a uh, sudden we enter a Kali temple or, or, or read the stories of Krishna, of course, that appears as esoteric and exotic. But um, all of these traditions have, through the centuries, Generate just like Patanjali has a commentarial tradition of Vyas. You know, you were saying how these commentaries they, they they make bring it alive, they show you the coherence of the sutras, the coherence of a metaphysical point of view. All these traditions have that. Buddhists have their great, you know, Buddhist theologians, Nagarjuna, Chandrakirti, Jainism, you know, not so well known in the West, probably may, ne- may never be. It's even in India, it's fairly regional, it's not, it's never been a sort of international. Profound the- theologians, and likewise with all these bhakti traditions. So if you have an intellectual disposition, you'll want to read the philosophical basis for these traditions. If you don't, and there's no reason why one has to, then it'll be more of a, an emotional response, perhaps, or a heart response. And, uh, uh, so how do you know? you know? You'll never know until you experience it. It's like, how do you know there's a China? you won't know till you get on a plane and go there. However many pictures you see on the TV, however many people you speak to, however many Chinese friends you have, you don't actually, can't, you can't actually say I know until you have actually experienced it. You can say, you know, it, it, all probably, you can make inferences from the pictures on the TV and the, and the magazines and the people you talk to that them well, there must be, I mean, how can all these people be wrong? So it's like that with the spiritual path. Who went before us? What, would, what were the previous yogis? What are their stories? What are their lifestyles? What are their behaviors? What, are the, what is the community of present day uh, members of this community? You know, if there's a guru, what's his ethical behavior? What's his ethical behavior? Ethics are fundamental to this. Is the person free of ego is the, or is he trapped in some big you know, jet setting lifestyle? Like so many, of, uh, you know, gurus uh, you know, have been since the '60s. So you, you 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 apply, you trust your heart, you apply, you apply reason, and then you you start to do some practices. And just like asana, you know, in the beginning, you you know, it was kind of painful, but you, know, you got something out of the first few classes, and you kept going. You have to get something out of it too, and that that also reinforces. But ultimately, it's all faith until you get to the grand finale. It's all faith. Yeah, that we should be clear about that. People may say they know, but they don't, they believe. Until you actually had an experience of the Atman or Darshana or your beloved Krishna or your beloved Devi or your beloved, I'm a Krishna Bhakta, but, but, but you know, until you've actually had the Darshana, it's faith. But it's, that, that doesn't make it faith that's uninformed. Everything is faith. Materialism is faith. You want to be a materialist, that's faith. You want to be a hedonist? That's faith. Of course it's faith. It's faith. Oh, faith. Hedonism is faith. Faith that my de- desires will will somehow satisfy me. These are all, we, we navigate this world based on faith. So we, get, so we get to choose our faith. That's all it is. So that, and, there, and, and, and we have these tools like Svadhyaya and you know, experience coming from our own practice. The exemplars, the, the, the community of people that follow this both present and also in the past. We read their stories and we 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 bolster our faith with all of this
0: thank you so if someone wanted to begin to well i think there's a there's such a strong idea now that people can practice asana and somehow they're consuming and swimming in the giant complete and total ocean of yoga. Uh, Maybe they're mistaking the, just the part for the whole. Is, um, do you see a change in the road up ahead?
1: Well, I used to take a very holier than thou condescending sort of judgmental puritanical attitude and stick my nose up at all of that. And and I've learned to be more humble and uh, a little bit more humble, I hope and recognize that also from sort of being involved with the yoga community, accidentally actually, uh, for a quarter of a century now. And I, I begin to see over that period that even if someone has the purely physical asana connected uh, reasons to take up yoga, they simply want a, even a sexier body, right? Let's just call a spade a spade they want you know somehow or other they, they want to do yoga so, so that they can in, increase their desires their ability to to enjoy right yoga is about tapaha we just discussed but let's say that you we start off from that place I've seen that just the practice of yoga it seems to me I mean, I'm talking about, you know, sort of Iyengar, you know, the Krishnamacharya. Tris. I'm not talking about hot yoga or naked yoga or any of that stuff. I'm talking about the sort of, let's call them the more ortho, you know, the, let's say something that came from, you know, the orthodox, Krishnamacharya was orthodox Hindu, even, and Shivananda, not even, but Shivananda too, very orthodox, you know, these great beings. So, that whatever their disciples, the yoga that filters down from them, I've seen people that follow those and They'll, they slowly become more and more and more sattvic without realizing it. I mean, I'm putting that label on it. I'm putting that category on it. And what happens when sattva starts to increase? One of the qualities of sattva is knowledge. And, the, and, the, and, 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 and both knowledge and the desire to know, not just mundane knowledge, but higher level knowledge. And I found that the people that yeah, many instances of at least in my experience, uh, folks that over the years, just by doing asana, slowly, slowly, they need to do pranayama perhaps. You know, and, they, and, 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 and they say, look, I got so much out of asana. Well, what else is involved in this package? Right. And they know, everybody knows there's a lot more. And slowly they become interested. Slowly the mind becomes attracted because it, you know, a little bit starts to become more sattvic. And slowly, 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 then they start to develop a little svadhyaya. And then for, once you start developing svadhyaya, then things take off from there. So I now come to, I've come to the position that even if 95% of people are doing this physically, it's better to do this than, 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 than kickboxing or other forms of, of exercise, because at least yoga will will contribute to the development of sattva. That's a long answer.
0: And it is... Impossible. Can I just say
1: one thing though, Kiki? Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. Krishna says in the Gita, Manusyanam <laughs> nam kastya yatati something something forget. out of thousands of people only one yes. is going to be interested in spirituality Yes. And of many of those only one even knows Bhagavan so it's, it's a given it's always going to be a minority that are going to go deep so, the, so what about everybody else well, let them do some asana let them at least cultivate some sattva let us encourage that Let us, you know, if we're teachers, try to inject some jnana, some bhakti, just, you know, skillful means. Try to throw a few little, plant a few little seeds, just like our teachers did to us.
0: Yes. And the desire grows. Because I think even the most satisfying asana, at some point it no longer satisfies. But there we are in the yoga with so much more to learn from. So people are coming into the, to the ocean and they have a chance to experience more. Um, and then it's, just, up
1: to, it's up to teachers like you oh, to provide you. that. This, yes. is your, this is your dharma. Okay. So if people are not getting that, it, we are the ones that are failing right. in, our, in our dharma. So, so rather than judge them, we should be thinking about, well, what, what am I doing that I'm not you know, touching people's hearts?
0: I think when yoga, when I was attracted to yoga, and certainly when you were, it was very much something on the fringe, and it was radical, and I think that there's something very compelling and adventuring to be on a a feeling of a radical path, and it's probably really only the perception of the mainstream, Um, but... To somehow have faith that the yoga is being communicated through that. Yeah. And our radical path, it's still our radical path, but it's yeah.
1: within. And, 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 it, and so is Christianity, real Christianity. I mean, what did Jesus say? Give up all you have and, and follow me. That's radical. So it's there in Christianity. And how many Christians do that? No point, no. There's always every generation. There are going to be those that do the same with yoga. So it's up to us. Do we want to be those? Do we want to be those individuals that really give everything to it? And the more we give, the more powerful we become to touch other people's hearts. The less we give, the more, the, the less capable we are. Of, even if we're big philosophers or big Sanskrit scholars, we won't be able to touch people. What does that mean to touch someone's heart? To plant a seed that causes change that causes that person to take up a spiritual path. That's what it means to touch a heart, in in, in yoga anyway.
0: So in addition to the Srimad Bhagavatam, the beautiful Leela and stories of Krishna, that naughty little scamp, <laughs> um, are there other uh, bhakti poets and other, inspirations or delights for you that you would recommend that might be less known to us?
1: Well, I mean, I'm at the point when, you know, I'm at the point now where I, you know, I, I don't, I think kind of a prasta, you know, stage of renunciation where, you know, I've been studying for 40 years. I don't I don't need to go jumping around anymore. I do if I teach and I, you know, if I, to the, to the extent that I, whatever I need for my teaching, but I, I'm completely all my needs are fulfilled in the Bhagavata Purana, and I, I, could, I, I could swim in that, uh, you know uh, for the rest of my, my life. Um, obviously, there's other beautiful poetry by Mirabai and Surdas, and you know you can download some of this now from the web. The Ramayana is always going to be a, a, just a wonderful story, and you know I, for my own Swadhyaya, I would never. Anymore, I just read the Bhagavatam, but because I'm an academic, so I still I get the chance to sort of create courses and then I can't just teach the Bhagavatam, although I do a lot of that. So I'll I'll, 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 I'll create a course Well, I'll get to read the Ramayana again, you know, for the sixth or seventh or eighth or tenth time. And I'm very happy to do that. So the Ramayana is beautiful story. All of the stories are wonderful. And, you know, the philosophy, I teach Hindu philosophy. But, um, you know, at some point you find your canonical text. And you go deep in that, you know, and to some extent, of course, the Gita is too. I'm working on the Gita now. It's like a trilogy. There's a sort of three part, the Yoga Sutras and then the Bhakti Yoga book. And then and, and working on the same thing, all the traditional commentaries on the Gita. So that, you know, so, I, so that keeps me, that's going to keep me closely connected to the Gita for a few more years. But if the question is in my private space and my personal space, when I'm not teaching, when I'm not sort of, Thinking about what, what what am I what's my dharma What do I need to bring into the picture for teaching It's just my pure me and Bhagavan. what's well, Bhagavad Purana, There's nothing. I, I need nothing else.
0: And I find that a for me a challenge with the Bhagavad Gita is that it's kind of a dharma shastra. It's about a society from long ago. It seems to support a caste system how can we what what advice would you have to awaken a a more freedom or love for that it's a it's a martial text that was always a turn off to me we're on this battlefield
1: well because it's a dharma text then dharma means doing your duty in society and the Societal duties in any society, actually, but ancient India thought of them in sort of, you know, divided them into four basic types of things, you know, Brahminical, warrior, kshatriya, and, and, and business, and then and everything else. And so, and, and so, this is a text for warriors. You know, Patanjali is a text for brahmanas, for yogis. Uh, but this is a text specifically for warriors because it's all about duty. The primary thing is about duty and duty in the world and the warriors are the ones that have to make sure everybody else is performing their duty. So yes, in a, in a civic order, if you're gonna have a society, are we having this discussion now in our, in our day and age, can we get rid of all of the police? Right now, can we really, really, really get rid of all the police? Is there, do we absolutely, I mean, for example, if you had a child is us I always give this example, you, let's say you had a young child and someone ca- approached your child with a gun and was about to kill your child but someone could stop that person by force, would, you, would that not be a, 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 a rightful use of force? Now, if you say, answer yes to that, to save your child, and this person's about to murder your child, and, and, and somebody could stop that, but I had to use force to stop that, then that's a rightful use of force. If you say yes to that, then you've accepted that there is a rightful use for force. And if there's a rightful use for force, then, they, they are, then there are people that have a, some kind of a right to wield that force. So every society has something corresponding to an army or, or a police force. And you know, and, and, and they have dharmas, they're controlled by dharma. When is it when is it righteous to engage in war, right? was the Second World War? So most of us would, would think of that as a dharmic war. We might not think of the Gulf War as dharmic, uh, but we might think of the Second World War as dharmic. So in this way, if we can sort of think along those terms, you know, some sort of sense that there is a dharmic place for violence, if there's going to be a civic order, there has to be some way of enforcing that order. Um, even though, you know, we have all these discussions and as as are ongoing, going, and that's all good. The Dharma Shastras are full of discussions. But if we, in principle, accept that, then that's the Bhagavad Gita. The Gita, is that it was a righteous war according to their criteria at that day and age. The Pandavas had to fight that war out of the Dharma. Arjuna didn't want to, but he had to. So that, so yes, it, it's not a yoga, uh, you know. It, it, it's both a Dharma Shastra and a Yoga and a Moksha Shastra. It's a combination. You know, Patanjali is just a, it, um, it doesn't tell us anything about living our life. We, I mean, we have a few words about Maitri and karuna, but it, it, no real, it, no real discussion about dharma and how to live in the world. Whereas Gita is a Dharma Shastra, it's it, it, it sort of, but it's also Moksha Shastra. It's all about moksha. So It's a very interesting combination of different things coming together and ultimately all these things are coming together and getting subsumed under the ultimate um, Teaching of the Gita which is bhakti and surrender and devotion to God. So It's a very Interesting text with a lot going on And it, yes, so um, So how do we relate to the caste system? Well, we don't have to We just accept that, okay, the the civic order was different. I mean, we have our castes, actually, if you really wanted to enter into discussion. Maybe we have more social classes. But most of the world, I mean, certainly England has much more of a sort of hereditary caste system. So we could sort of think about it that way. It's not unique to India. But let's say we really find that unappealing. That's not the primary. The the text is not promoting. It's just accepting what the civic order is. It's not strongly promoting it. So we don't have to accept that. We can just say, look, you know, whatever it's talking about with, with Dharma, well, how do I, I apply that in our civic order? What's my Dharma in, in, my, in, in, the, in the, I was born by, because of my karma, I'm born in this moment in time. The civic order is different. The Dharma codes are different, it doesn't matter. What is my Dharma within that? That's really what we, that's what the Gita is helping us to think about. And how do I perform that dharma as a yogi? Meaning, so I don't want to generate fresh karma all over again. And that's where the, the main the teachings of the Gita, the comments it makes in chapter two about the caste system, are completely marginal. It, it just so happens that at that time, that that was the only known civic order. And Krishna does say, yes, it comes from me. He does yes, he says, I am God and I establish this order. Right, We may be uncomfortable with that, but there's a lot to be said a lot of thinking, you know, there's a lot to be said about that, but it's, that's not the main teaching of the Gita. That's the point I want to make now.
0: Thank you. Thank you. That's helpful. Yeah. And so we have our daily practices, our tapa. We continue to study, to learn, to read, to grow, to look to these traditional studies, the the great meditators, the great um, gurus and saints. And then we are cultivating our own love or longing for a union or for a contact and connection with a holy, beloved being.
1: Yes, if, we, if, if we're bhaktas, that's how we think of it, yes. If we're, if we're not bhaktas, if we're jnanis, then we're not interested with some other being. We just want to realize our own innermost nature of consciousness. That Some, the, some jnana traditions take us to our own atman. Or, or if it's Buddhism, and they wouldn't call it atman, but nonetheless, your own innermost truth. It's bhakti that accepts that in addition to our own innermost truth, there's another supreme being, a paramatma, a purushottamaha, distinct. Purusha Visheshaha, says Patanjali, eternally distinct. We have to be careful of projecting Advaita Vedanta onto this. Advaita Vedanta has become so popular in the West. Everybody's thinking Advaita Vedanta, but that's just a, a quirk of history that that's become so popular. So Bhakti is about, in not just our own Atman, but yes, as you just said, the relationship between our Atman and the Supreme Atman.
0: So this klesha karma vipaka apuram apramrista this vibheshya ishvara ha. Yeah. So when we fall in love, yeah, we are attracted to the qualities of the beloved.
1: Yeah, but Patanjali is not going to help you with that.
0: Yeah, he's not. He's saying almost that there are, that it's beyond quality.
1: No, he doesn't say that. He just doesn't give us any information at all. Mm-hmm. He just says, Purusha Vishesha. He just says, Look, he, whatever he is, he's a k- k- Klesha Karma Samaya Navachin He's never been affected by the Kleshas and Karma. Fine. That just means he's never been affected like we are. He's not somebody like us. He's not some yogi that made it out. He's not a paradigmatic yogi, as some people bizarrely, bizarrely try to say. He's a Purusha Vishesha. He's a, he's a Purusha, just means that he's not made of property. He's also Purusha. He's a Purusha. He's, he's an individual conscious. An individual sort of expression of consciousness, but he's supremely omniscient, he's the guru of the ancients, he gives a little bit of information, but he doesn't start talking about his qualities, that we have to go to other texts for that. We have to go to the Bhagavad Purana, even the Gita, oh, we get a lot more, but still nothing compared to the Bhagavata and the Puranas. Krishna, yes. in, in, the, in the Gita, at least we get Krishna in, he's standing there, so we get, we, understand, we see his form that he manifests. His so multiple we have more, forms. Multi, well, multiple forms, and at some point, you know, in the 11th chapter, he shows that horrific form, that's one form, but that's not the form of bhakti, we don't want that form. Mm-hmm. Even Arjuna freaks out, he says, no, 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 right. we go back to your other form. So that's not a bhakti form, that's just a form of power. Bhakti is, is the form you fall in love with, it may be baby Krishna. Or it may be whatever it might be. That, that you're, you know, if you if you surrender to Ishwar, Ishwar will come in a form that will catch your heart. You don't have to worry. You don't have to the Oh, which form is it? No, do I wish I read theater?: No, so pranidana and Ishwar will catch your heart in some form. Thank you. We don't have a form. It's because we're not pranidhanaing. We, 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 we say we want it, but we don't really.
0: We don't want it yet, maybe. <laughs>
1: yeah, and it, but it's all good. At least, even if we know that, even if we, even if we just say, "I hope one day." That's all. That's good. That's honesty. That's humility. Even I think if it we,
0: was Saint Augustine? He said, "Oh God, make me chaste and good and pure of heart, but not yet."
1: But not yet.
0: Not yet.
1: Did he say that? Yeah. In his confessions.
0: Something in that he wrote, I remember studying uh, that years ago. I thought it was quite witty. Like
1: quite pity and on, uh, pithy and honest, yes.
0: Yes, make me all these things, but not yet. Let me just enjoy. And I love this story. I heard Swami Dayananda tell a story of Vivekananda when um, his guru was ready to give him, you know, moksha. And Vivekananda said, no, 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 I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I have responsibilities at home. Um, and then the rest is history.
1: Yeah. Well, we're very fortunate if Ishwa ta- takes everything away from us. In the Bhagavatam it says, if, Krishna, if Ishra blesses you, he'll take everything away. He'll crush your relationships. He'll take away everything that you're clinging to. And you'll be thinking, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? I'm so devoted. Why have you done this to me? But that's actually the blessing of God. It'll take away all of those things we cling to, and then we have no option. Especially, especially if we're boxers, then we turn again to Him, even though we might be a bit annoyed. <laughs> that's a special blessing.
0: Thank you, Edwin. You're welcome. Thank you for joining me today. And I'm so happy to meet you. Um and Thanks. It means a great deal that you sat with me today and you shared your time in your beautiful garden and all of your studies and devotion.
1: Enjoy your prasad.
0: Sa- it is a prasad.
1: Of course. Of
0: your of your own devotion.
1: Enjoy your, sa- your sailboat. Thank you. And um, may may you, if you feel like your father's bhakti it sounds to me like from the tone of the language and the tone of much of what you said, that you, you clearly have a bhakti disposition. And then the way to nourish that is, is, is Shravana is, is to read and deeply, you know, it, it, you probably already have some kind of an attraction to some form of Bhagavan. So just start reading more and more and more. Because that's what love is, right? When you love someone or you just want to hear about that person and you know, mothers love their kids and they love to hear everything their kids have been up to and so on and so forth. So that's the same with Bhagavan. I wish you all the best.
0: Jai Shri
1: Krishna. Jai Krishna. Jai Krishna.